when you're talking about these children who are more outside of the, the ordinary range for, for gender behavior, the tomboys yeah. and the effeminate boys who, who like playing with, with dolls or, or other sorts of, of activities. I liked to, to do jazzercise when I was a kid. I love <laughs> dancing. Um, when you're talking about those kids, that the first thing that you're, you're doing is pressing them to ruminate about their gender and yeah. you're saying, well, if, if you're different from the, the more typical person of your sex, instead of saying, let's, let's as adults, let's just uh, make our predictions and see how many of us are right that this kid's going to become gay. Instead of doing that now, we're saying, well, let us divert you from this possibility that, that you may actually exhibit same-sex attraction as, as you start to come into puberty. Let's take you off that track and instead put you on this gender track. Hi, everybody. This is Broadview. I'm Lisa Selen Davis. It's my last entry of the year, and for my very last posting, I wanted to talk to Corinna Cohn, who is a self-described transsexual and co-host of the wonderful Heterodorks podcast, and also co-founder of GCCAN, the Gender Care Consumer Advocacy Network, which advocates for better gender care for all people. Corinna is one of the most interesting people I've met since I've started to report this story in a more complicated way, and someone who has walked me through a lot of ideas and arguments and helped me see this issue in different ways that I wanted to share with you all. So thank you for all your support this year and a very extra special thank you to a person who will not be named, but who's been volunteering to help me edit things because um, I can't afford to actually <laughs> pay anyone, including myself, yet. And I hope everybody has a great new year. And I hope all the people who are in pain because of this issue have a brief reprieve. And now my conversation with Corinna Cohen. Corinna Cohn, welcome to Broadview. Thank you for chatting with me today. Thank you for inviting me, Lisa. Can we start? by you talking about how you came to transition? Sure. Uh, I might keep it brief because I've, I've told this once or twice. In fact, I even wrote about it. In That's a true. Washington People can read Post it. Article. <laughs> People can yeah. read it, but I'd still like to hear it. So some, some key things, some salient things. Um, uh, when I was a young boy, I had some, uh, I was bullied quite a lot. I had some difficulty with social interactions with my peers. And uh, I even had a psychologist that tried to help me work through some of this when I was, I guess, in second or third grade. And I just had a hard time being a boy for various reasons. I, was, I also had some emotional regulation issues, which meant that it was, uh, I would cry very easily if, if something 
upset me. And uh, that went on for a couple of years. And then as I got a little bit older, not much, much older, um, but about prior to puberty, I started wishing that I could be a girl because I thought that, you know, girls were nicer to me, boys were mean to me. I thought that there just wasn't a place in the world for me as a boy. And uh, if I could be a girl, that would make it a lot easier. And then uh, not long after that, um, puberty did kick in and I started hating my body. Uh, I hated the way that I was losing control over, over, you know, I no longer felt like I was the master of it. And on top of that, I was starting to uh, have attraction to some of my male schoolmates, which made that more confusing. And um, I stacked all of that together and I had this idea that if it were somehow possible for me to become a woman, then that would resolve everything. That would make it all better. And I know it sounds disjointed and it sounds crazy, but I can't make a claim that as a young person that I was necessarily processing all of this correctly. So as soon as I was 18, I got a medical referral for hormone replacement therapy. And when I was 19, I had sex reassignment surgery and that worked out okay for a while. But when I say okay, I mean that uh, probably six out of seven days were all right. And then every once in a while I would have really intense self-loathing because there was a part of me that would look in the mirror and go, you know, you're not really a woman. And that would create a, a, a lot of anxiety and dissonance and depression. And uh, I went on like that for quite some time. And I guess some time in my early 30s, I fell into questioning the path I had taken and came to the conclusion that, well, actually, I'm not a woman, but I am a, a man who's gone through this uh, pretty unusual, very modern experience of medicalization and surgery. And that since all of this is, is not something that I can undo, that at least what I could do is face the truth and figure out how to reconcile what has happened to me or, or what I have instigated to have happened to me and try to live with it. So I have been outspoken about this process. This is probably one of the re reasons that you and I know each other. My hope is that by being open and contemplative and thoughtful and not, not angry or recriminating about it, not towards myself or not towards others, that hopefully other people who've been down a similar pathway will be able to recognize something in themselves in my story. And it, that will help accelerate them towards a, a similar path of reconciliation. So you kind of had your own private truth and Re reconciliation committee and, and when you said, like, when you said you faced the truth, what was that truth? Was it simply that you hadn't changed sex, or was there something else? 
Yeah, that's that's the essence of it is that no matter what you do medically, no matter what you do cosmetically, no matter how you style yourself, because isn't that shallow? Like, you know, you and I both have long hair. Some, somehow uh, we've gotten to the point where long hair means you're a woman. Like how, how shallow and stupid is that? Uh, you can't change your sex. And giving up, trying, is the first step towards living in your own body and you need to be able to live in your own body to have peace. Does that mean you think no one should transition? I, I'm not so absolutist. Um, the word should is, is an interesting one in that sentence. It's doing a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that adults, if they know what they're trading off, if they can understand what they're expecting to get out of it, and it's a it's a realistic expectation that I I don't want to stand in the way of anybody who wants to see if if this will improve their lives. Uh, I just know from my own experiences I have I have absolute confidence that children are not in a position to be able to make that judgment. Their their brains have not grown in yet. Besides not being cognitively developed enough to understand those trade-offs, what do you think children, well, what do you think the trade-offs are? What, what is it you think children don't and can't understand? Well, for one thing, children cannot really understand in completeness that they cannot change their sex. Uh, and it's to me, it's it's the horror of the modern age that there are adults who are telling children that they can change their sex, and that this is starting to become institutionalized. That schools are inviting in so-called professionals to give gender education classes to children whose brains are are not finished cooking yet, and telling them. You know, some of you may look like girls, but you really aren't. And some of you may have penises, but you're really girls. And it's really confusing a lot of these children. I, I think that this is one of the most abusive and intolerant movements in American history. And, and I know that there's been some horrible ones. I would say that this is in the top five, maybe I mean, in the top three. It, it is astounding how deeply institutionalized some of these ideas are and how early, you know, the kids are reading books in, mm. in preschool that teach them that boy and girl are social categories. And I think that the issue with that is that as you know from your own experience, that stops being true at puberty. And, yeah. and so if you believe that, the chances of you um, settling into yourself at puberty and being comfortable with yourself seem much smaller because all, really if they were social categories, why would we have these medical options at all? 
Yeah. And, and you know, it's sort of funny. This, this just occurs to me. Um, you've heard stories of people who grew up with very uh, rigorous edu uh, religious indoctrination where they're told that there is a God who's judging them and there is a devil who's going to come after them. And that the amount of indoctrination that they get is, is brain warping to them growing up where they feel like they're constantly under the microscope of a, a deity who's preparing to judge them and strike them down. And that this warps people's ability to uh, develop in a healthy way. I think this gender stuff is, is exactly comparable to that same sort of indoctrination. It instills doubt and uncertainty. It agitates anxiety. It produces a cause for depression. So the per persuading children that they should ruminate on whether their body is the right one for their brain. I, I don't think that, that most of these kids would be going through that sort of experience if it were not so institutionalized. Well, I'm thinking I, about, I'm thinking about, um, I still have one kid in elementary school. And when we started there, you know, our kid was the only sort of gender, gender interesting kid. And it was um, confusing. And I had no idea what was going on, and neither did anyone else. Um, and it was a little hard in the beginning. There was um, teasing. I mean, people would call that bullying, but I really think that should be a word that means something. So there were, there were, there were a couple of, of kids who could not accept that she was a girl because of oh, how yeah. she looked. And so we had the teacher, the kindergarten teacher, have a little chat with the class about um, boys and girls can look and play all different kinds of ways. And eventually the kids got it. And in fact, that's how I got to the word tomboy was some other, some kid must have talked to a parent and told my daughter she was a tomboy. And she came home and told us that I had lost track of the world altogether. And um, whatever's wrong with that word, it did a little bit of work in terms of not having to talk about it anymore, right? So the goal was actually for us not to talk about it. And what the school told us was, have, you need to prepare your child to respond to the people who don't get it. And we'll do, we can only do mm -hmm. so much, right? This was the attitude um, eight years ago, eight years ago. Okay. And, you know, they didn't, they didn't do, they didn't change anything. And in those eight years, it's completely different. So that now they ask the kids their pronouns. They ask them, these are elementary school kids. They ask them, you know, if they're cisgender or transgender. Um, there are suddenly enough yeah. parents. Do they, I, I got to ask, do they ask yeah. these kids if they're straight or gay? I don't think so and oh, but they, they ask if they're they're transgender or cisgender right because the they because they believe that trans kids know themselves 
early. And and ah. there is one little boy who's very, very feminine and, you know, has uh, shifting pronouns. And, you know, we mm. would have a few years ago, we would have understood that that child was likely to be gay, though. Not we don't know. Not definitely. Not definitely. Um, but now there's. When you make it, we, we can't accept that sexuality can express itself in children. Oh, this is the kind of thing that could get us in a lot of trouble, but um, that our sexualities affect our behaviors even very young. So long before we have any any sexual attraction, sometimes extreme gender nonconformity is a sign of later homosexuality. But now there's an assumption that gender and sexuality are unrelated, so they're not asking these prepubescent children about sexuality, but they're asking them about it. I'm just saying right, it's right. well, so well, much in eight years. Just it has. I want. I, I want to. I want to say something and break in here for a second because I think. I think there's a really important point here, which is when you're talking about these children, who are more outside of the the ordinary range for for gender behavior, the tomboys. Yeah. And the effeminate boys who who like playing with with dolls, or or other sorts of of activities. I liked to to do jazzercise when I was a kid. I love <laughs> I love dancing. Um, when you're talking about those kids, if the first thing that you're you're doing is pressing them to ruminate about their gender, and yeah. you're saying, well, if if you're different from the the more typical person of your sex instead of saying let's let's as adults let's just uh, make our predictions and see how many of us are right that this kid's going to become gay instead of doing that now we're saying well let us divert you from this possibility that that you may actually exhibit same sex attraction as as you start to come into puberty let's take you off that track and instead put you on this gender track so that if you are the sort of person who, uh, you know, little boy who likes playing dress up, and then um, pretty soon, instead of you being a, a boy who's into other boys, let's turn you into a girl. If you're this girl who likes rough and tumble play, you, you like uh, building things, more typically, the playing playing with the robotics and stuff. Instead of you being a, a girl that's um, more interested in in these activities that we think are are typically more masculine, let's let's get you to start thinking that maybe you're in, instead a boy. What are we doing to these kids? I I cannot think of any other way of describing it than it being abuse. And and what's really astonishing to me, this is this is my 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 favorite part of this irony. Is it really trans people who are institutionalizing this, or is it people who don't identify as trans but want to be such good allies that are institutionalizing it? And I think it's the latter. I, certainly, there are there are trans activists who are involved in this, but I think when you start to pull this apart, what what it mostly is 
are people who want to be great allies. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what they're doing in practice is that they are, by and large, gender-conforming individuals who are institutionalizing a path of medicalization for young people who are gender divergent. And, and so what, what you have in a, actually in effect is a system that is developed by people who aren't and will never be trans to place gender nonconforming people onto a medical leash that will lead to sterilization and uh, it, it put them into a completely separate social category biologically because they will permanently become medical patients. So this is, you know, what, I'm not the sort of person to talk about uh, co colonialization or colonization or, or, or any of that stuff. I think it's, I think there's some interesting arguments, but that's not really my vibe. But when you think about that type of systemic process, that institutionalized process of deliberately creating a marginalized class of person mm -hmm. because you're try you're trying to do it for good reasons but actually it's because you're trying to identify and segregate people on the basis of what is normal and what isn't uh the the the, 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 the we're being colonized right <laughs> the, the people who aren't trans are institutionalizing a system of medicalizing and segregating people who are gender nonconforming, many of whom likely would end up being gay or, or lesbian. I mean, it's a very interesting way to look at it. And the people doing it certainly don't look at it that way. I mean, they really, I, I, it's an interesting thing. They're creating a marginalized class, but they're doing it to save them. They want to identify them so that they can get them the help they need so the kids don't kill themselves. I mean, I think they really believe that. And, and one of the things that strikes me about that argument, and that I think it's largely made by young people, because I, if you're Gen X or older, you know that there, there was no concept of anything called a trans kid when we were growing up. And um, there was no medical option. This, it simply didn't exist for children. And there aren't piles of bodies. 41% of these kids with gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria existed or gender identity disorder, as it was called. But they didn't generally kill themselves and those who transitioned as adults it didn't necessarily stop them from feeling suicidal so there's the but but that's the i think that's that's one of the issues with young people who grew up with this concept is that they they don't realize that you know for all of human history until a couple of decades ago most people figured out how to navigate the world without these medical options and without these institutional social options. And I don't know how to, the, the people who really believe that identifying 
in in as young as two or three years old who is transgender that they're doing that because they want to save them but it's so fascinating that what you're saying is they're creating this marginalized class but again i think their their intent is to save them so how then would we I mean, the reason i brought up the thing at my elementary school is to say eight years ago the goal was to make it um unremarkable my child's difference the goal was to make it unremarkable we explained it we gave her some language when people didn't understand it and then it really it rarely came up again the entire time sometimes in the bathroom you're in the wrong bathroom then we gave her language to you know oh i'm actually a girl sometimes girls look like this that's the end of it right so we now we're obsessed with it we're having kids ruminate on it as you said how do we how do we invite people these allies participating it to think about it as potentially harmful and yeah what's your advice for that my advice we shouldn't be doing this you, you know what's what's I mean, interesting to get people to see to get the people who have institutionalized it to see it differently how do we do that sorry i interrupted you you can say what you want i don't to say. i don't know how we do it I don't know how we do it. We have to have these conversations. People have to be willing to open their ears and consider this viewpoint. But there's, aside from finding some sort of magical device that lets us change everybody's minds, you know, the only way that we can do it is, is one person at a time. And the, the activists have developed a juggernaut, which the, the only thing that we have at this point on on our side is that the truth is on our side money's not on our side the the feel good oh i'm really helping people that self satisfaction that that little uh turkish delight sweet that <laughs> the the witch gives the kid Mm-hmm. In the, the Lion, the, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We don't, we don't have the Turkish delight to hand out like the other uh-huh. side does. Right. Okay. But we do have the truth on our side. You know, if we're, if we're going to go all in on the C.S. Lewis uh, metaphor here, we've got Aslan on our side, except I'm not a Christian. What we have is the slow and painful process of truth and reconciliation, which is a delayed gratification, but it's no, it's no Turkish delight. Um, But that makes me think about what you said initially, which was you grew up feeling there was no place for you. Now, I think these people teaching these things in to very young kids are under the assumption that they are making a place for a kid like you they are what what would have been helpful for you as a young feminine boy what what do you wish had happened well i want to start by saying that there is a very dangerous um 
enticing thing about imagining how things could have gone or should have gone because I have the benefit of 40 plus years of insight and contemplation and experience, but your memories start to, you know, the more that you learn the, the, as you change your perspective, your, your ability to look back and feel things the same way changes. Um, you transform yourself and when once you transform yourself you can't see things the way that they were before if you know what I mean yeah so all I can do is say well what sort of advice would I give to parents who right now have boys who are more interested in hobbies or or activities that that are more typical with their girl uh, schoolmates or or uh, other kids that age. Um, I would just say be supportive of your boys that are interested in some of these activities and tell them that it's it's reasonable for boys to, to be accepted in some of these things. Um, I was I was interested in, in dancing and my parents could have gone through the effort and shown me that there are celebrated male dancers and that, in fact, they're actually necessary in some of these uh, professional ensembles and that not, not to dissuade me and say, oh, you're going to get beat up if you do that and you shouldn't, you shouldn't have an interest in this. This is a girl's activity, but rather try to find the the celebrated male examples you know it's th- this is going to sound extremely crazy as as an adult but i really loved cooking when i was growing up and that was considered a, a feminine pursuit at exactly the same time that some of the world's most renowned chefs were male chefs mm. right so so this idea that was being uh, <laughs> introduced to me that I was wasting my time doing something that was a woman's activity, it, it made absolutely no sense, right? Yeah. Instead, I should have been uh, given cookbooks that were written by men. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, so, it's also interesting that there was some place for grown men when they're when they're professional. Those were accepted activities. You could be a chef and a professional male dancer, but yeah. there's somehow for a child to dabble in it was unacceptable. Yes, that's right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So I like, I think I think uh, if you have children male children who are who are interested in things that are um you know if if you have a, a a son and you're frustrated that he's not picking up the football and throwing it with you but instead he's um sitting down and designing dresses go find go find an example of uh, a man who's doing that professionally and say look it's totally okay that you're doing this men do this this is this is not an activity that's only for girls. There are men who do this. Well, it's so 
hard as for so many of us is is seeing is the tension between trying to fight stereotypes as we did in the 70s and this movement to kind of rescue children via gender identity which is based on stereotypes and mm-hmm. when you point that out you know you're you're called a horrible bigot as you what 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 are what are some names that you've been called? Yeah, I, I want to clarify. I'm not, I'm not a horrible bigot. I am an absolutely fantastic bigot. <laughs> no, I'm I'm, I'm You're one of my favorite bigots. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting how the definition of words can change uh, based on their use and misuse. Yeah. So whereas I am like. As, as deliberately and consistently as possible, I'm trying to make myself open to different perspectives and arguments and viewpoints. And I, I, I've, I'm in a position where I'm going to make a claim, and I'm not, I'm not going to try to prove it. So you'll have to trust me on this claim. Okay. I spend a lot of effort trying to reach out to people who have different points of view from mine and, and hear them out. And I'm talking about people who are advocates on the trans side. Yeah. Just have conversations. Like, what's your viewpoint on this? Here's, here's an interesting article. Uh, what, what do you think about it? Um, like, let's talk. I do this a lot. So if I'm a bigot, I'm doing bigotry wrong. Because bigotry is about having a very locked in and certain viewpoint of the world where you fit people into categories along some sort of moral spectrum where these people are good, these people are in the middle, and these people are bad. And I cannot be dissuaded from slotting these people into these categories because I have uh, very fixed expectations of what is, is right behavior and wrong behavior. That person's a bigot. When, when they think that way. These are good people, these are bad people, and it's, it's because all of these judgments are on the basis of, of what my um, moral framework looks like. But how can you connect with people who view the world that way? Because most of them don't want to be, they, they subscribe to the no debate stance because in part, if they communicate with you, they're morally soiling themselves. So it's very, I'd be interested in talking to more people who disagree with me if they weren't, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little too sensitive for that, for the attacks. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I was, I mean, I was fascinated by your conversation with Katie Montgomery because the, the person who shows up to talk on a podcast is so different than the person who's who's saying mean things on Twitter, which I mean, obviously, but most of those people who are um, so didactic and aggressive on Twitter aren't going to say, oh, yeah, I read that article and here's what I think. Um, what do you think? Let's get on a podcast and talk about it. I mean, how many people accept your invitation and are willing to digest opposing viewpoints with you? 
fewer than I would like, but it's it's not zero. But I'll I'll tell you something that I I believe. Uh, this I believe. Do you remember that series? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that they do it anymore. Um, Might be helpful. Yeah, that was a uh, who who did that? I don't remember. That was on NPR or something, right? This I believe, and then it would have people giving an essay about something that they believe. Yeah. An audio essay. Yeah. Well, here's something I believe. I believe that most people, even the ones who disagree with me 180 degrees on on everything I believe, I believe most people that if you treat them with respect as an individual and you're willing to make it clear to them that you will listen to them, not not necessarily listen to agree or listen to affirm, but just listen to hear them. Yeah. That that you can build a bridge with people as long as long as they trust that you're willing to listen, to hear to hear them. And I'll I will I will hear out people, I will listen to them. I, I don't necessarily agree with them, but when I'm listening to people, I I can do so in a mode where I'm not preparing to argue with them and I'm not preparing to uh-huh. tell them how wrong they are. But instead that I'm I'm trying to listen to hear, well, all right, well, what's your point of view? And then hopefully that will create an opening where I can say, well, likewise, I, I, I'm not saying this to disagree with you and I'm not saying this to uh, get you to, to offer your arguments. I just want you to hear my point of view also. Uh-huh. We might not agree on this at all, but if we can just talk about it, that will at least help both of us create a more accurate image of who the other person is. And that can only help both of us. We don't we don't have to agree. We don't have to end on on the same note. But if if we are able to at least uh, peaceably and respectfully exchange a viewpoint, that will help both of us. So I, I believe that truly and sincerely. Do both people have to be equally committed to that for that to work? No, I don't think it has to be equally committed, but there has to be a, a certain threshold that you reach. I mean, I am trying to learn this. Um, and because the minute I start talking about this stuff with um, people in my general kind of blue, I mean, I was going to say blue dot, but I'm in New York City, um, you know, People, people in my cohort of super liberal, um, pretty educated, um, professional class, laptop class, um, everything changes the minute I bring it up. It just the, the air in the room changes. And recently I said to someone, someone was talking about this stuff, and I said, you know, I actually, I have a different belief system and I could talk to you about it if you were interested and that was a better way, although it still didn't work out that well. And I was at a a, um, a party on Saturday where people were really expressing a, a very particular liberal viewpoint. And I thought, I wish I could say, what, what do you guys think about this this viewpoint? Well, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. What do you think about this? And I knew I couldn't do it, so I didn't say anything, which I actually think is best. Um, 
I'd already tried out. These were a lot of people who worked in education and I had already tried out on one guy sort of telling him about some things like, I don't know if you realize about the school guidelines, but they allow, you know, the school to hide things from parents. And some parents have been investigated for not affirming your kids. He just looked at me like I was completely insane. This would be the right thing to say, but I haven't practiced enough. I don't know how to do it. I don't know these people. Um, and I don't have these skills, but I, I would like to cultivate them. And on Twitter, like some of the people you engage with, like the, these, I'm just shocked at the number of people who've blocked me, people who I would <laughs> like to follow because I, I want to know how they're framing their arguments sometimes so I can argue against them, but you know, in a, in a piece of writing and I, I, I want to keep track of where the, what the rhetoric is and where it's going. And I, I must be on some kind of list oh, that yeah. all of these people blocked me who I'd like to engage with. But they've already decided without me ever having interacted with them a single time that I am not someone to engage with. Lisa, have you heard of this tool? this uh, web browser tool called Shinigami Eyes? No. All right, I'll tell you about this. Um, first of all, the reference. The, this is called Shinigami Eyes. Shows Shinigami is a, a Japanese word for uh, it's like the Grim Reaper. Oh. And, it, and it comes from this, this anime series. So it, it doesn't matter, but you know, anime stuff and trans stuff is, is like peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> This tool is a browser plugin that a lot of trans people use, and I'm going to come back to this point in a second, which categorizes websites, including social media profiles like yours and mine, on the basis of whether we are evil or good. Oh. So if somebody were to look at my Twitter profile, in their browser while they were using this Shinigami Eyes plugin. All, my name would be in red. And you might notice this in mm. the screenshots that activists post, that the screenshots that they post are always color-coded where the oh. names are either green or red. I don't know if you've seen that before. No, never noticed that. All right, well, you'll, you'll notice it from now on. Oh. Because if you see the names that are red, that means that these are, are evil people. And if the names are green, that means that they're good people. And where, where evil means um, trans-critical and good means trans-affirming. So uh, there is very, very unfortunately a part of trans culture right now, and this has been going on for about 10 years now, there has been a technological development where people who are identifying as trans and, and now it's even pulling in people who are supposedly allied with trans people to shelter them from critical points of view. Yeah. And of course I'm calling it critical uh, point of view. They would call it hate. This blocks yeah. hate on the internet. This is a tool that blocks hate on the internet. And it's, it's not just this one tool, it's a number of other block lists. So the, it is a self-selecting 
echo chamber, whereby anything that is considered uh, well, I mean, this is this is exactly what we were talking about earlier. In a way, this is the flip side. Instead of institutionalizing gender identity, this is sort of the opposite part of building up that that gender bomb shelter and locking out everything that is an outside influence mm -hmm. that would be um, that that would introduce uncertainty into the gender ideology. So at the beginning of this pipeline, you're introducing uncertainty about gender identity to, to, to make it uh, unstable, to, de to destabilize gender identity. And then once you're able to flip somebody's gender identity, you've destabilized them and then you've gotten them to commit to something that is different or, or, or that, is, that is a gender identity, right? So most people, don't have any sense of a gender identity. So once you destabilize their personality enough, they feel like they have a gender identity, then you give them all of the tools necessary to, to stabilize that sense of a gender identity by helping them to remove anything that's critical mm -hmm. of their belief system. So that's, that's what these tools do, Lisa, and, and this is why you and I are, are blocked by thousands and thousands of accounts is because there's a technological support to stabilize this um, <laughs> unstable personality <laughs> aspect <laughs> because the the worst thing like the the thing which undermines gender identity and gender ideology the most are to have people like me, who I, I call myself a disenchanted transsexual, mm -hmm. uh, or, or the detransitioners or the desisters, to have us speak in plain terms about our experiences of how we came to identify and later how we became disenchanted or disidentified from, from a trans personality or, or trans aspect. To, to talk about it in plain terms is the biggest threat to individuals who are identifying as trans. Because when they hear our stories, and, and you, you can go find all sorts of posts about this on Reddit of, of trans-identified trans people saying, oh my gosh, I've read this stuff. I've read about detransitioners. Now I am so confused. I don't, I don't know why why they're detransitioning, but it's ma it makes me feel very anxious to hear about it. Oh, don't read that stuff. Like that's, this is exactly the same as the ex-gay movement. Has nothing, no, no similarity. But they're saying, oh my God, this is exactly like the ex-gay movement. Don't read this. Uh, everybody who, who detransitions, the only reason they detransition is because of social pressure. This isn't true. Uh, so, so they're all self-hating anyway. This isn't true. And all of them are going to retransition. That's not true. So, like, we are uh, considered like a, the, the mind virus that's going to come in and destabilize their trans identity. So they, they do everything to protect themselves to, to, uh, 
not have that sort of, and it, it is, it, it would be anxiety inducing if you have made such a huge commitment that you're going to change your name, that you're going to change your, your gender marker on, on your, your um, license. If, if you start buying feminine beard products instead of masculine beard products, you know, if you start putting on, you know, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> if, if you're making all of these commitments, you're medicalizing, you have surgery. Like the absolute worst thing to contemplate is, oh my God, what if I screwed up? So, so of course they want to protect themselves from hearing anything that would cause them to think about, oh my God. The question. What, what if I shouldn't have yeah. done this? What, what mean, if, what if I'd be happier? What if all yeah. these bouts of depression... What if all of this anxiety, what if this anxiety isn't because the world hates trans people? What if this anxiety is because I have done something that really fun fundamentally puts me into conflict all of the time with the, the natural order? That's a big question. Yeah, I mean, nobody wants yeah, to think about it. So, so in other words, censorship and self-censorship is integral to this movement. Oh yeah, and and it makes sense when you think about how much censorship of of. Um, I mean, I also I'm not fond of the term gender critical, and I'd never apply it to myself. Although some people have applied it to me, which. I find very odd because I thought, wouldn't you want to ask how I identify before you call me that? But, um, but of, of, I guess just views that question this orthodoxy that they're so heavily, have been so heavily censored in tech. I guess that's, it's, it's really, it's really important to the viability of this movement and, and to get people to, curate their worlds so they can maintain this worldview and protect themselves. And it, it makes me think about, um, I mean, it's not fun to walk around in the world thinking I could be wrong about everything. We're not designed for that. Although I guess that's also called intellectual humility, but it makes me think about when I, <laughs> when I moved to New York, you know, almost 30 years ago, and I came into contact for the first time with Jews for Jesus, and I was totally fascinated by this. So I, I had a very kind of fractured Jewish identity, but I met these Jews for Jesus right after college, which was, you know, right after kind of realizing, I guess I am kind of Jewish. <clears throat> and I would ask them to tell me their stories, and they would say, I believed this thing, and then I realized I was wrong, and now I believe this thing. And I said, how do you know you're not wrong now and they said oh because now it feels real it feels different and I wanted to start this thing called the church of wrong because I was an atheist and was really raised to really be an atheist not a polite agnostic but an atheist and I but I was open to I wanted to believe in God I wanted to belong to a group and I I wanted to be nice enough to be open to the possibility of a God and I have theist friends and I like them a lot. Um, but I, I guess all this is to say, I 
nobody uh, wanted to join my church of wrong, but that was just where you held a belief, but you oh, right next to it, you held open the possibility that your belief could change. I feel like that's what's missing is the acknowledgement that these are belief systems. And maybe what you and I believe about sex and gender are also belief systems. We think it's, I mean, you cannot actually change sex, they, but, but some they, of the things are, I believe are belief are, systems. Yeah, they're belief systems. But we, we know that. Yeah, but, but part of what's built into our viewpoint is uncertainty. Yes. Right. And so life becomes about, I, I could protect myself against that uncertainty by attacking everyone who disagrees with me, or I could aim for what my kind of intellectual heroes go for and what you are doing, which I admire you so much for, which is having the uncertainty not be so destabilizing, but saying, I'm curious, and I understand that I could be wrong, and let me investigate and let me listen to you we would have to train our i mean there are places like heterodox academy which are trying to tra train academicians to be like that and, and teach their students to be like that so but it's a small fraction of society the rest of the the media and the tech companies are all making money off polarization so, yeah it's it's more profitable yeah. I have been, I, I don't know, on and off in 2022. This has always been sort of a long-term fascination of mine, but spending a little bit more attention on, on it this year. Uh, personality typing. Mm. The, the big five personality. Uh, Is that like introvert, um, extrovert thing? Well, or? yeah, that would be the, the Myers-Briggs part uh -huh. and, and uh, you know, the openness to experience uh -huh. uh, oh agreeability you know, agreeability all of yeah all of this sort of stuff and there's a part of me that thinks that it's likely i i hate saying this because it sounds like it it's ho hopeless in a way but i think it's likely that one's personality which is very deeply ingrained and unless you're uh have some sort of um, mental condition where you can't develop a, a stable personality. Your personality tends to be uh, pretty ingrained. There might just be people who are not able, who will never be able to develop uh, curiosity about things, who, who are so fixed in their viewpoints that no amount of training, no amount of heterodox academy, no, no amount of instruction, no, no activities, no popular books, no self-help, that there might not be anything that will get people to be curious. They, they just might not be capable of it. Not, well, not that that makes them depressing. bad. That doesn't make them bad. It's, it's just a facet of well, their personality. What personality trait is related to curiosity? What personality? I guess openness would, would be openness. my guess. Uh -huh. Keep in mind that that's a better question to ask somebody who's not, not uh, just a, a casual um, <laughs> looker-upper of this stuff, but actually somebody who does it for, for uh, 
for money. I mean, I've asked some some other people, you know, what what do you think those of us who have resisted the orthodoxy? And listen, I tried very hard and I wrote a whole book in which I I didn't accept it, but my questioning was very gentle for a variety of reasons, including cowardice. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but I've why are some people resistant? And and one person suggested it was disagreeableness, that that's what people who have resisted the orthodoxy have in common, which I, I have um, plenty of disagreeableness in my personality. I'm not a people pleaser. Yeah. Do, do you remember who posited that theory? Yeah, it was a, a therapist who actually... She said she she herself is quite agreeable, but mm. I don't know. All right. What what do you think about that theory? Well, I, I posited something like that earlier this year, so I was I was curious. Oh, did I hear from you? Well, well I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, don't someone know if... else said it. A, a therapist. Wow. That I was chatting with, not not my therapist, just a a therapist. Wow. Maybe there's dozens of us. um oh you posited that theory i i I just want to go i know we have to go soon i i want to go i didn't get to ask you about gc can which i want to ask you about in a in a minute but i was thinking about what you said about people like us being marked as evil and there's so much talk now about language is violence and when we say that, um, I mean, you and I never say this, but this talking point about hate, um, mm. hate speech, and that people, some people, you know, want there to be a genocide of trans people. I've actually never, never seen seen that, but I've heard people say that, or that, you know, that we should hate and fear trans people, and that that's why there's violence and that we can't, I mean, there was yeah. a very sad story that I read today about a, a trans kid, a son of a lawmaker who did commit suicide, but this was a kid who was supported and transitioned. Yes. Um, c- c- could, could I, could I fill in a couple of details there? Cause this was actually an adult. Yeah. It was a, an adult, but wait, a before, before I do, I do want you to fill in the details, but yeah. just so finish my thought so yeah, that yeah. we can go back to, which yeah, is yeah. just that, how is marking us as evil better? Wouldn't it also incite violence against people like us? But now go back to uh, oh, no, talking no, we, about we, the story. We, d- we deserve oh, to we deserve. be okay, in, so invaded against and, and marked for violence because we're evil. Okay. You, you know, the, the punch a Nazi. We actually are evil as opposed to them. They're innocent. So if we call them evil and incite violence against them. Okay. I mean, well, I never... that, makes us, that makes us evil when we, when, when we, when we criticize sense. them. That's mm-hmm. evil because they're good. Mm-hmm. And when they punch us, that's good because we're evil. Right. Okay. It's good. A, it's a, Get it it's now. It's a very, a very flexible framework. And I, I say sometimes that I don't trust good people. And gosh, Lisa, I, I hope this Whoa. doesn't put you on the defensive here because I, I, th- mm-hmm. I think – I think I'm you not might, a good person. <laughs> this this might resonate with you a little bit because some some of the conversations we've I've had. I've never identified as a good person. 
You haven't? Okay, well, that's good. That's oh, good. no. Because uh, there are people who really want to consider themselves to be good people. And I think that that distorts people's behaviors because they start to make decisions on the basis of, I need to do this because that's what good people do. Wow. I need to, I, I need, I, I want to be a good person. So I have to do this action uh, because I am, I am persuaded or convinced that for, for me to regard myself as good and for other people to regard me as good, I have to follow along with what everyone is telling me is good and bad. So the, the thing that, that I'm worried about, and if, if there's one thing, like I, I, would, I would get rid of all of the gender, like I'd put that completely aside. If, if I could just persuade people to believe one thing, it would be that the pursuit of good for the sake of goodness is going to lead you to unwittingly inflict harm. So you have to be extremely cautious about doing good for the sake of good because you actually don't know what the, the secondary and, and tertiary consequences of your actions are going to be. So you might think that you're a good person because you're accepting the, uh, the cross-sex identification of a child. Right. Oh, I'm a good person. I accept trans kids. Well, the, the secondary consequence of that is that you're concretizing this child's cross-sex identity. And then the tertiary effect of that may be that the children, the, 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 the female schoolmates are, uh, are going to feel, um, question, like they'll start to question their, their own worth because you might now have a, a boy who identifies as a girl getting marked out for special treatment and special privileges that, that the girls themselves no longer have. So one such privilege or, or entitlement that, that we assume everybody should have is some privacy in spaces where they're at some state of undress. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this very good person who is now affirming the identity of this boy who identifies as a girl is not only concretizing the identity of this boy, which I am convinced that, that most of these trans quote-unquote trans kids, these, these children who are being affirmed in these cross-sex identities, I'm convinced that most of them will follow a path like mine, which they'll come around and say, I, I can't do this anymore. Mm. Um, but but you're, you're concretizing that. And then you're also telling girls, hey, um, you don't have a right to privacy. We're going to tell you that you do, but that what we're going to put into practice is that you don't. We're going we're gonna to say everybody's uh, entitled to these things, but the only people who we're going to really put our actions behind are this, this group that we've uh, marked for, for entitlement. So let me, let me just go backwards a, a second here. Good people don't try to be a good person, right? Don't try to be an evil person, but don't, don't try to seek 
uh, good for the sake of goodness. Like you have, you have to be very conscientious about what your actions are and what effects they'll have. And don't do them because they're good. Do them because you have thought through the consequences of your actions and you believe that they will result in a net positive. That's, um, I mean, that's a great goal. And I think it comes back to this version of the world we're living in, in which we are polarized in every possible way. And black and white thinking at the is institutionalized because part of these gender lessons are a kind of black and white thinking. If you like this girl stuff, you're a girl. If you don't support social transition, you're a bad person. I mean, it's this, I mean, God, I hate to, I hate to realize this same boring thing about nuance, <laughs> but that, it does seem to come down to that and the, and and that's what you're talking about is is seeing things in an incredibly complex manner and and i would say i i was saying i didn't identify as a good person it doesn't mean i don't a feel bad that i'm not a better person or that i wasn't trying to be a good liberal because yeah. I, which i think is different i was certainly like when i was when i first wrote about this issue in 2017 and then there was a big backlash and it was the first time people had written about me even though they didn't know me and none of them called me up but you know where I it was the first time I was really attacked personally and I thought oh well I must have it wrong I mean I must I I don't want to make vulnerable people more vulnerable so I researched like how can I how can I say what I think and make these points about stereotypes um without hurting people and one of the things I was told was you can't be nuanced because it'll be co-opted by the right wing and that turned out to be true although I would say the opposite is true too that the right is just as afraid of nuance because it'll be co-opted by us and so um, the problem is fear of nuance mm. <laughs> the problem is a world in which people are trying to win instead of um, create more understanding and be more comfortable with complexity and ambiguity, which again is the opposite of Turkish delight, right? It's yeah. so delayed gratification, but it is very gratifying. I mean, Krenna, you are one of the favorite people I've met in doing this work. And we've had so many conversations that, caused me to see things, which we didn't get to, but maybe we'll do it again, you know, in, in a different way. And to me, it's just been, I feel like very excited about listening to people who see things differently than I do. I mean, we don't see things that differently, but I think um, I've, I've listened to you a lot and it's, I've learned so much and it's been awesome. Well, uh, thank you. I, I, 
I'm always embarrassed when complimented. <laughs> so, um, All right, just take it. Yeah, well, thank you. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap it up? Any any hopes for 2023? Oh, gosh. Let, let me just do a quick retrospective here, though. <laughs> okay. So I've stuff been, has been happening. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been talking about this stuff in one form or another for 10 years now. I think, wow. I think last month was the 10-year mark since I started getting into this conversation. And uh, 2012, oh, my God. So things kept feeling worse and worse and worse and worse every year until about 2020. Actually, 2020 felt pretty bad, too. But you know what? I think 2021 things started to turn around. And in 2022, there has been more interest in this topic from a, from a nuanced perspective, trying to understand different points of view. Um, there's been criticism of WPATH's standard of care eight, which if SOC eight had come out three years ago, I don't think that there would have been nearly the same amount of uh, criticism of it. Yeah. So 2022, there have been more bills introduced to try to solidify sex-based rights for women and girls. I know in the media, this is very widely propagandized as anti-trans bills. Um, even in the ones that say nothing about trans at all, that, that all they are doing is making it very clear about uh, the rights of women and, and girls. It's, it's interesting. This is a, a, a diversion here for, for a second, or dig digression, excuse me. Um, it's really interesting how when you really advocate for women and girls, that that can't actually be on behalf of women and girls yeah. without somebody else saying, well, actually, that's a dog whistle right. that, that is anti-trans. But let, let me tell you something. If you really think about it, you say, I'm going to advocate for women and girls. Oh, well, that's anti-trans. Well, uh, it's only specifically anti-trans against the population of males who identify as females. It's not anti-trans right. against the population of females who identify as males. Right. So uh, you, you get, get rid of all of the gloss. This is really comes down to the rights and privileges of biological males versus the rights and privileges biological females and all the trans stuff is just window dressing well window that would be window cross dressing let's <laughs> call it that um right and that sorry. would be a legitimate way to interpret it in the press as um you know what does it mean for women's rights but they're not interpreting it that way and they're, they're not interested they're not. in i mean which is one reason i I'm trying to platform more heterodox trans people to say, actually, there are a variety of ways to look at these issues within mm. people who are trans or, or who call themselves transsexual, transsexual. And you can talk to those people and they'll, there isn't just 
a trans point of view and an anti-trans point of view. But those are the two points of view in the mainstream media right now. But, yeah, that oh, is yeah. changing. We're ending the year uh, with more um, complex, nuanced articles than we've had in the five years before. And and really, it's because I think 20 – it's really four years. It's really 2018 after Jesse Singles' article in The Atlantic that – and, and Katie Herzog's in The Stranger, that it all shut down. I think hers was 2017, and mine was 2017. But 2017, you could debate, and after 2018, there was only one way to report the issue, trans and anti-trans. And my point is trans, the trans point of view is actually very heterogeneous and can be reported out that way to those journalists willing to do it. You deserve compliments for being one of the writers who have very deliberately worked to bring nuance and neutrality into this issue to say, well, let's, let's see what's in the, the box here and unpack it. And instead of making judgments about everything that's in the box, to, to just try to unpack what's there. And, and try to help people understand what the, uh, what the environment looks like. So I, I appreciate everything that you have brought towards oh, thank you. Helping, helping curious and, and non-aligned people understand the landscape. So thank you, thank you so much for that, for, for this well, interview. Thank you. Thanks for helping me do it. Thanks for helping me understand these issues. What should we what should we wish for for 2023 in in terms of this issue? Always courage, courage. You know, have I know, I know congratulations. I know you just had 4000 subscribers to your Substack newsletter. Congratulations yeah. on that. There's Thank you. there's uh, mostly unpaid. <laughs> mostly unpaid. Um, what I wish for in 2023 is that these people, probably me included, should cough up some money and, and help help you out. Um, yes, I wish that also. But the the thing that I really want our side to start doing is is asking people in their in their uh, circuit in their in their in their uh, what is the word that I'm looking for here, Lisa? I don't their, know. Friend the, group the cohort. Their cohort, ask the people who they know, well, what do you think is really going on with this stuff? Uh-huh. Is, it, is, it, is it really likely or possible that some humans are born with the wrong brains? Like, does that make sense? Because uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Have some courage, y'alls, folks, guys. Go out, go how out there. You. How dare I know how very dare me. <laughs> um, have some conversations. You don't have to, don't, don't go out and be a, a zealot. Don't go, go print out uh, the, the adult human female flyers and post them up necessarily. Uh, that's not required. But have some guts and open up and have a conversation with people. And and have some courage to say that you aren't persuaded by the zeitgeist. Uh, 
the only way that this is going to change is if people are willing to go out and take even the tiny bit of risk and go out and say, I don't believe that all of the stuff that's being mainstreamed is, is real or, or authentic or correct. Just be, just be the person to say that. That's what I wish for 2023 is that more people will stand up and say, I don't agree with this stuff. Me too. Courage in 2023, everybody. Yeah, get some. Get some courage. Well, Corinna Cohn, thank you so much for uh, doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for the invitation. Have a, have a happy new year. Have a happy new year. <laughs> <laughs>